In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents... A lot of them aren't even... Even pretending to be in charge. Slow the testing down. Remove him from office. No justice, no peace. Cast a vote that will make you proud. The Betches Sup Podcast. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. Hello and welcome back to the Sup Podcast. I'm Amanda Duberman. And I'm Caitlin Bird. And today we are here with authors and activists Dr. Yusuf Salam and Ibi Zaboy. Yusuf Salam was just 15 when he was wrongfully sentenced in the Central Park jogger case, along with four other teenagers who we now know as the Exonerated Five. Yusuf Salam is a poet, a prison reform activist, and author with a Lifetime Achievement Award from President Obama, along with numerous other honors. We do a 30-minute podcast, so I can't list them all. Um, Ibi Zaboy is a writer with an MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts. Uh, among other titles, she's authored the novel American Street, which was a National Book Award finalist, and she also edits the Black Enough Anthology. Together, they've written Punching the Air, a novel written in verse about a 16-year-old boy who was wrongfully incarcerated. Thank you both for your time today, and congratulations so much on the book. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank so you we well. both we both had an opportunity to read the book, but we'd also love to hear you each describe it. So can you describe what Punching the Air is about? why you wrote it, and why you wanted to tell this story together through a YA novel. Well, you know, you know, I was, while I did not live the experiences of Yusef, of course, but we met in 1999 when we were in college. Um, well, actually, I was attending the college, and Yusef was as well, because we just found our college IDs. But he walked into a class that was being taught by a former student nonviolent coordinating committee member, SNCC, uh, Professor Marimba Ani, who also worked with the late John Lewis. And she was part of Harlem's uh, activist community back then. And she had invited Youssef to sit in on her class. And when he walked in, we didn't really remember who he was. Although I was uh, in sixth grade when the Central Park Five case occurred. But as soon as I found out, uh, because I was the editor of my college's newspaper, I wanted to get an interview from him. That interview never happened, though we did uh, take a long walk and talk about his case, including the man who was responsible for their conviction um, in sort of a backhanded way, who is uh, Donald Trump. Um, I never got that interview, but I ran into Youssef again in 2017 when my debut novel was published, my young adult novel, and he was selling his self-published book of, of poetry, and I was shocked that he had not already told his story in a mainstream way. Uh, I was in the midst of the conversations around young adult novels and social justice issues. And here he, here he was having experienced something as a teen, but the world had, didn't know about it. Uh, the, next, the Netflix series had not yet um, aired and I didn't even know about it. So I knew about the Central Park Five jogger case. It was part of my childhood narrative growing up in New York City. 
And when I met him, he had not been able to tell his story in, to a larger platform. And I was a published author. And as they say, the rest is history. Wow, that's so amazing. <laughs> this, this, this is, this, the, the cool thing about this, too, is that it's an it's a, it's a opportunity, I think, for us to give an offering of, of love, of um, guidance, you know, through this difficult time as well that we are experiencing, not just the COVID-19, but also um, oppression, right? Oppression coming to its head, oppression being ne needing to be defined and, and, and some answers being given. And I think punching the air is that great opportunity for us. Um, me having gone through a terrible ordeal, uh, Ibi being um, a prolific writer, a celebrated writer, uh, able to take my words and massage it into um, this great book that we all have um, and that we are experiencing. And that in a lot of ways, as we navigate through life, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we maintain hope? How do we maintain our dreams? How do we allow for circumstances not to change us, but to help us grow into the most magnificent people that we need to be? And I have to add that um, the story features 16-year-old Amal Shahid, who is incarcerated for, um, for getting into trouble one night, having a fight, but the fight ends up um, in a near fatality, and he is not responsible for that near fatality. And he is sent to prison, and he has to find a way to cope and make it through the next day. Uh, while Amal's experiences doesn't reflect Yusef's experience, he is inspired by Yusef as a character and as a, as a person. Yusef is an artist and poet in the same way that, I mean, Amal is an artist and poet in the same way that Yusef is an artist and poet. And I was part of the spoken word uh, movement in college as well, so I bring that expertise to the page. And so basically it's something, it's a different lens. We're not just talking about the prison industrial complex or mass incarceration. We're talking about a child. This is just a, not even a bird's eye view, just more of an introspective narrative about what would go on through uh, in the heart, mind and soul of a child who finds himself in this situation. Yeah, and <laughs> that's very, um so poetic, um, appropriately. Uh, the book is, um, what was interesting to me was that I was surprised as I read to start getting mentions of smartphones, Twitter, social media, and other trappings of our current day. And I kind of was wondering what inspired to set it specifically at this time? Um, and how did you decide to capture, how were you able to capture the voice of a, a modern teenager? Um, surrounded by very new forces, right? Like, as we're coming of age in adolescence, I was like, I didn't have smartphones. And I graduated high school in 2006, which makes me feel old. Um, but like, it's so different now. And I thought that the voice was so, so close. I was just wondering, like, kind of what informed that deci decision? I think it was a collective of our experiences. And also the ability, I think, to look into the future and what would be this experience of a 16-year-old a in 1989. And we both knew what that looked like because we had several experiences that we had been um, 
exposed to, whether it was Amadou Diallo, you know, whether it was me in terms of uh, Yusuf Hawkins, Yusuf Salam, um, all of these cases, all of these um, atrocities that were going on and that continue to go on, Emmett Till, you know, modern day Scottsboro boys becoming the Central Park Five and now the Exonerated Five. I think all of those things um, through Ibby's writing allowed for us to take the past and move it into the present as it informs the future. Because, it, it, you know, like we're still, we're still talking about Emmett Till because we have not experienced justice. We're still talking about others in a similar way because in a similar way, we still have not experienced justice. And so it seems like there's this circle going on about what, what our, our collective experience is. And it, I don't want to say it just so happens, but the beautiful thing about our book is that it showed up right on time. All of the stars have aligned. And, you know, in the midst of the desire to be entertained and educated at the same time, our book shows up. You know, Punching the Air is, a, is the opportunity for this story to be told and also the opportunity for us to have conversation as it relates to what's going on now. Yeah, you've, you've set this book more or less in the present, 30 years after the, what you call, Yusef, the criminal system of injustice uh, wrongly sentenced you. As you mentioned, uh, Amal's experience is, is slightly different to the extent of, of his participation, but I'm wondering what that says about how you think the system has evolved at all, where you could retell your stories from, from 30 years ago, um, and, and so many things are so jarringly and upsettingly familiar. How, how, what does the fact that you were able to center this story in the current day say about the way this system has evolved, if at all? I think, I think what that says is that the foundation of oppression has not changed. We have changed, right? We have, we have collectively said we want to be the, um, ex the, the answer to Dr. King's dream. And so as the kaleidoscope of the human family, we will walk arm in arm, hand in hand together into the future. But the foundation of, of systemic oppression, of, of racism, of white supremacy, white male dominance has not changed. And, and, and I think if we were to predict the future, we would probably be right in saying that it probably will not change. There's been this desire to keep um, racism going. There's been a desire to keep slavery going. We see it in the founding documents of this country through the 13th Amendment, which is in the book. You know? And we also see it um, rearing its ugly head through this current presidency and how we have been thinking we've been getting gains in our political uh, pr uh, progress. We've been thinking that we've been making strides in, in our humanity, but we've been playing an offbeat tango, two steps forward, 18 steps back, you know, and wondering how do we get here? But we got here because that's part of the design. We've been awakening to the understanding of what we need to do, where we need to be, how we need to show up. But in that awakening, we're fighting against um, a design that has been perpetuated against us maybe 100 years into our future. I think I want to add that um, when uh, I started working on this with Yousef, I was talking about it to my teenagers. I have three teenagers. Well, they're teenagers now. 
And I realized that they, there's a whole segment of American history that they still don't know about or they didn't know about. So they're studying civil rights movement in school. And because they go to a progressive school, they're learning about the Black Power movement with the Black Panther Party, et cetera. And then it ends there. And then in 2012, we have Black Lives Matter and Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, et cetera. Uh, so there is a whole gap in their understanding of racial injustice in this country. They know that civil rights is still a thing. That's they know about Emmett Till. And it goes from Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin. So when they found out about the Center Park Five, it was just an awakening of, wait, this will still happen happening? And I hadn't mentioned this before, Yusef. I, I also showed them um, Cornbread Earl and Me, this 1970s movie, and um, what was the other one? Cooley High. Cooley High. Um, they were both movies set um, in the 1970s. I think they were set in the late 60s, but were out in the 70s about just black boyhood. And something happens at the end of each movie that you could kind of guess what that is. And when they saw it, they were like, wait, this was 1970s? You know, and realizing like, you know, for each decade there is, there are incidences that reverberate time and time again that lets us know not much has changed. Um, so we grew up in New York City. So while I watched the Central Park Five case play out in elementary school, before that, there were other incidences. Um, there was, right after the Central Park Five case, there was Yousef Hawkins, and that's what Yousef had just mentioned. Um, and there are some others, I, names I can't even remember. Um, excuse me? Bernie Gates or Getz? Bernard Getz. Bernard Getz yeah. and um, a white man who took it upon himself to shoot, uh, was it four black young black men who he claimed was trying to rob him? They were probably trying to rob him, but <laughs> the point is, you know, he took it upon himself uh, because crime was so rampant in New York City. And he was hailed as a hero because crime was so rampant. But there were other people coming to the defense of those uh, black boys, too, in the same way that a lot of people did not believe um, believe that the Central Park Five um, did commit that heinous cr uh, crime because of the overall narrative in the media. And it was so hyper-local in New York City that if you're not from New York City, you didn't know about these things, and which was the case with Yousef and the Exonerated Five. So in that sense, I had a lot. We both had a wealth of experiences to pull from to say, you know what? We can pull from the Michael Griffith case. We could pull from Yousef Hawkins and your case from our childhood. And it's still relevant today. There was also the Genesis 6 case that happened in 2006. And yeah. because media wasn't, social media wasn't the way that it is now, we forgot about that. You know, it's not making the rounds anymore, but that was not that my children were born <laughs> at that time. And those men are still alive to tell their story in the same way that the exonerated five are. So it, it's to, but so because of that, punching the air is not just about um, racism. It is about a boy. And I'm, we're gonna keep reiterating that because you know what the systems are may not change we're not going to reform or abolish the prison systems, but what can a child do in those situations? How do you keep on, hold on to your humanity? And what is it that you do to be an agent for social change, even if you don't experience it yourself? 
I think the beauty of that too is how we all become lights in the darkness. So that even though we are fighting against uh, what may be an, an, an insurmountable mountain, we don't just say, okay, we're going to just let the mountain crush us, right? We begin to be, you know, we hold up so that everyone else that's coming and that is coming and that is there can get out, you know, and as much as we can, we then pull ourselves out of the rubble as the mountain crushes down, you know. But that light, that, that need for us to be able to eradicate darkness is there. And it happens, I think, all the time. It happens when we, when we sit back and try to plan the future and, and, and we become, um, when we, we hold the idea of what the future could be and how we pass the baton of legacy down to our, our ancestors, you know, or from our ancestors to our legacy that is coming, which will then be ancestors to someone else. You know, the beauty of that, right? Becoming our ancestors' wildest dreams, the beauty of being able to break generational curses, but also know that we were born in uh, the struggle and born on the side of right because we've been born with this skin, right? And I think that that's the part that's exciting about it all, realizing who we are, where we are, what we are, why we are, and how we are. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. 
You said that this story is about a boy, and I I think I was as I was reading, I got the sense of this of this broader world being explored through this character's narrative, um, and it felt actually very familiar because because it's in verse. I immediately thought back to like epic poetry, uh, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Um, and I was wondering if you, that was a condition, a tradition that you considered as you guys were writing. Um, do, and you're talking about how, um, you know, life and the, the world, we're handing down these traditions. That's one of the oldest traditions in poetry. I was wondering if that also informed kind of the sense of legacy. That's a great question. Um, while Yusef had a book of poetry, but one of them was very long, um, I Stand Accused, and he can talk more about that. Um, but unfortunately, that didn't make it into the book, but there are other snippets from his poetry that are in there. But absolutely, this comes from epic, the epic narrative that is told in verse form, which is the oldest form of storytelling. Um, prose is something that's still very new in our, like, you know, in our human history. And it's so interesting that verse novels are becoming popular with young people. And I remember telling Youssef that we can write this in poetry form and explaining to him, like, people do that, right? It's not going to be a collection of poetry, but you can connect each poem and tell an, and, and give it a narrative arc. And I had about, there were about five poems that I worked my way around, five poems that Yousef had that I worked my way, you know, out of five poems came like 30,000 words, but it's um, really planning those poems and then creating the arc around the character. But absolutely, it is like the Odyssey and the Iliad. It is when Yousef, I don't, so sometimes Yousef brings up this idea of a griot, a jelly is the African word for a griot, like the, the village storyteller um, and the keeper of the culture. That is a tradition that we both are coming from. With Yousef, with his speaking and my with my writing, we hold on to culture and we share it with the people. And the way that we share it is not always in chunky paragraphs, right? <laughs> we have to make it accessible to young people. And I'm happy um, that my, our publisher is uh, printing a special paperback edition to donate to um, uh, young people um, in the, in, who are incarcerated because they can't have hardcover copies. So they're partnering with a nonprofit organization. And for um, reluctant readers or struggling readers, this is just an easy access for, him, for them into story. Not to say that it can't un, un digest a novel in prose, but this is easy to get to the emotion, to get to the root of the story. So yeah, all of that. And, you know, Yusef was a poet. He wrote poetry. You weren't, you weren't writing chunky paragraphs about your experiences, were you? No, they were very succinct. I, I found um, that to be as succinct as possible gave me the greater opportunity to get it out. And just to, and when I say get it out, I'm not, I'm not even talking about getting it out to the world. I'm talking about getting it out of myself so that I can then read it and then it become a key for me, right? Because in many ways, I would reread these poems that I, would, that I wrote in prison. And these poems gave me a sense of purpose and a sense of, 
um, stick-to-itiveness that I would have given up had I not had those reminders, you know, the reminders that we are at war, the reminders that, you know, like, like if you said, I stand accused, you know, because at some point there's this desire for you to just say, okay, well, they want me to be the monster. I'm going to be the monster. But I had to remind myself that I stand accused, that I am accused of this. I am victimized in this, in the same way that others have been victimized, right? There are six victims. And back then it was more than six because we talked about the Central Park 7 and it could have been the Central Park 46. But because it got, so to speak, cut down to the Central Park 5, there were five victims being accused of victimizing a white woman. We actually were all victims of the system, you know, um, but I had to remind myself of that. I had to be able to tell my story in a way that gave me hope. That, that, that spoke to the idea and the possibilities of what could be. And in poetry, I found really an open door, a window to opportunity that I didn't have. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a means of being able to remain free, even though my body was in bondage. Yeah. And we, we can't forget hip hop, the role of hip hop in all of that too, because uh, it is essentially hip hop and hip hop Early hip hop, our eighties hip hop was storytelling. Yeah. They you know, the the song the 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 bars were all story. The lyrics created a story and we're also pulling from that too. It's it's funny that you say that and I just wanna just say this name just quickly only because you said storytelling and I'm thinking about Slick Rick. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um so Yusuf, as I was, I was reading um, the excerpt that you guys had in, in Oprah Magazine, and I was, I was going to ask, you know, what was it like to inhabit that your younger self in that time of your life? But I thought he must, there's been so many cultural representations of his experience. You must have had to do that a lot, but you actually did say that you found this somewhat traumatic because you were reliving it in a way that you had not uh, before. So I kind of wanted to pose questions about that to both of you. Um, Evie, did you, did you know that this was really um going to be a particularly intense exploration of what Yusuf had gone through. And Yusuf, what, what was that like to sort of relive and inhabit your younger self uh, while you were putting the book together? So I did not, I realized that we had to tell a fictional story because for me to tell his story, there would have to be some therapy thing going on there. There right. were just, I wasn't ready to do that sort of excavation and Yusuf had mentioned in another interview that when I first asked him for an interview when we were in college, I never got that interview when he said maybe because I wasn't ready to talk about it, right? Um, and I'm realizing that when we did talk about the working on the book, um, Yusuf would approach it approach his story from a philosophical standpoint. It would be reflective and introspective. And I would have to do the hard work of just like, okay, so what was it like? What was in there? Um, but that required some memory and going back. So I took it upon myself to say, okay, I'm going to have to fill in the gaps. It's enough that I have the worldview, right? So for me, it was craft to get into the skin uh, and the bones and soul of a 16-year-old boy. That wasn't hard for me. I don't know why it wasn't, I know why it wasn't hard. I, I grew up around boys, you know, I had boyfriends. 
I was in high school during the height of hip hop and hip hop was very male dominated and listening to all those voices and getting the cadence and rhythm of black boys. Um, I, I was part of the community. I can, you know, I can just hear what black boyhood sounds, the depth, um, the rhythm, the thoughts were already there and paired that with you, what Yusef shared with me it, it wasn't that traumatic for me. I knew that Yusef lived it. I wasn't going to try to have him live it again because yeah. he, he already did that with the um, when they see us, right. right? And again, this wasn't his story. But I watched, um, of course, I saw When They See Us. I re-watched the Ken Burns documentary. I also watched the Khalif Browder documentary, and there's a plethora of just content on the internet to just get an idea of what boys or when boys and girls are experiencing behind bars. So that was part of the research, research, craft and interview, basically. Yeah, especially, you know, when, when you talk about the trauma of it, there's this um, liberation that happens when you tell your story. You know, you go through a therapy session that you had been denied, right? And I think part of that denial is also to ensure that you get trapped in that recidivism, you know? And once you're able to remove yourself from recidivism and make something of your life, a lot of times that happens because you've taken your story, you've taken your experience and you've really just said, I need to put this there. I need to put this behind me so that I can move forward. Because if I keep living and reliving this experience, it is going to break me down. You know, in so many ways, I had to forget. I had to put away, I had to lock up the experience, the trauma of it, in order to be able to move forward. And revisiting some of these were, were easier to look at it from the perspective of a outside looking in, uh, uh, introspective, uh, be, you know, being able to, you know, evaluate as... Um, not me being inside me, but me saying, this is what happened to Yusuf, you know, as opposed to this is what happened to me, because then I was able to really talk about it in a way that I had not been able to talk about it, you know. Um, with regards to when they see us, seeing my words being played out and portrayed through an actor was extremely traumatic and extremely liberating at the same time because it gave me the opportunity to quickly revisit but also deal with it and then emerge on the other side a brand new person, right? Not necessarily erasing the indelible scars, but, you know, beautifying them in the same way that you would beautify a piece of broken china, pouring, pouring um, gold inside of the cracks in order to make it a work of art. And that was the part that I loved about it. You know, just, wow, you know, I was able to finally, you know, tell this story, but also give direction, use platform in a way that I always thought was meaningful. You know, here you are with, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers on all your social media platforms, and you wanna be able to continue to be a light in this world of darkness. You don't want to use platform to, you know, so to speak, um, 
like I wrote this 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 hook to this to this song. Um, hands up, don't shoot. Slave codes again. Buck dancing. Thought we was prancing. We're seen as three fifths of a man. I'm fighting to live, fighting to give, fighting to raise my kids. I just want this to end. And it's it was talking about the oppression that I had experienced back when I wrote that. But we are still experiencing that. Those same lyrics are relevant today because we are we are we have not yet been given the true equity that we need in this country, the opportunity to be right, the opportunity to be seen as psychosocially um, necessary in society, in community, and I think those things are things that really make us more valuable when we say I am going to instead of and in spite of, you know, I can say I am ugly or I can say I am possible because whatever you say after the I am, you begin to give birth to. As I was reading, I felt myself like radicalizing. <laughs> Um, reminding me of the, the moments in which um, I've been told by society, by individuals that um, I'm inferior, that my blackness is inferior. Um, while I was, I was going through the book, at the same time, I noticed that there was a very distinct absence of a character that very often shows up in, in novels um, around oppression, which is like the good white person. There didn't, that, that character never showed up. And I was wondering, do you think that readers of different racial backgrounds are going to get different messages from the story? And should they? That's a very good question. A lot of these, um, a lot of these social justice book does that, has that noble white savior. And um, I didn't want that. <laughs> Neither did Yusef because while there were people, I think the Innocence Project was very instrumental in the Central Park Five. Is that correct, Central Park Five case? That that is correct, and I'm just I, you know just full full uh, transparency. That is correct towards the end of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the Innocence Project had its great um, the power of the Innocence Project started in 1989 in the same, so to speak, time frame as we were going and being railroaded by the system. But by the time this, the truth was coming out, they were able to help and participate and, you know, get behind this story in a way that we had needed, you know, but that wasn't there necessarily in the beginning. So I think in Amal's very tiny world, um, not tiny, in his small world before his story makes it out, you know, the the white people in his world fail him. Um, that is his lawyer, um, his teacher. Uh, I still don't know if the um, the social worker in Ms. Cheryl Ann Buford is white or black. <laughs> it, I'd leave it up to the reader to decide. Um, but this is a situation where For many of us, we don't have white saviors. There are no white saviors. This is something that's relegated to movies um, or books. (laughs) So this is, I wanted to make this as real as possible where the saviors in Amal's life are from his community. Um, And even there's a a CO who's hostile 
you know, and that's the reality that is actually the CEO that you're there, not to give too much away. It was something real that Yusef experienced. No. Um, so <laughs> with a tattoo. Yeah, I didn't make yes. that up. Oh my God, I was going to ask. And it was like, girl, you should not ask. You should not ask. Tattoo, tattoo, is, tattoo is real. <laughs> like, well, no, that, 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 that was a part of trauma that was, um, un, un, like, it was completely un, I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready, you know, um, and then you, you, you see this and you say to yourself, wait, what? And, and you look up and the person is like, yeah, and you know, you, you know, they're saying, yeah, that's right. This is what we're about. You know what it is. And you and you and you're so stunned. You're silent, and you conform because you realize that the power is them, right? They have the ability to open your cell and come and get you. They have the ability to disappear you, right? They have the ability to uh, turn you into a hashtag, which is one of the main reasons why I think now, especially. After Sandra Bland, there's been so many women and so many people just in general that, that have said, um, if I get arrested or if something happens to me, please know I didn't kill myself. You know, we're giving that, um, that legacy prior to any unfortunate event, you know, and I think that that's important, but that's very real. There's so many people throughout the state of America, of, 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 I would say throughout America, but definitely New York, where I'm from who can attest to that, who, who, who know about those tattoos, you know, who talk about the fact that this was not just the good old boys club, but these were families that had profited from being a part of the prison industrial complex. These are families that when you look at the 13th amendment, which is, it begins to become part of, um, part of, uh, what's the word I'm thinking about? Like a, like a, a, a not fiction, but, it feels fictitious when you read the 13th amendment it feels it feels like it feels like um no this no nah, this isn't they, they they're not really and then you realize no they are where are our black men where have they been but more importantly this this discussion like we were talking about is not just about the prison industrial complex, but it's about the, the other big ticket issues, gentrification, redlining. What happens through that? What is happening? What has happened? Oh, wow, it's still happening, right? This is part of that, 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 that well-thought-out, well-planned, 100-year, 1,000-year, in perpetuity plan designed to keep slavery, to keep oppression, to keep states' rights to exist by any other name, you know? And I think that that's the part that's the scariest, that when you, you finally wake up, you, know, you, you, you want the American dream, and now you're awakened to the American nightmare. So there are no white saviors here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, something that I found so incredibly powerful about the book is that you know, it acknowledges that for a lot of young black men, there's an element of something about this experience that is almost predestined, that is out of their control. And at the same time, it gets across what a profound interruption this is in a young person's life, that they were, they had a, a very full life and their future that they were looking forward to. And I think it gets across both of the contrast of it being, in a sense, something that was 
this person moving through the world was going to have a tremendously difficult time avoiding, but also, yeah, like I said, just what an insane and intense interruption it is for, for such a young life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it seems like we've all had those types of experiences, you know, and I think the great thing about this story too, you know, punching the air, although there's a, a, a African American or African in America on the cover, you know, it, it, it has all of those other kaleidoscopic elements in it, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that that's the beauty of this story, that it's beautiful. The cover is beautiful. They say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that it's not yeah. just because it's us, but this, this cover is a great representation of what's in the book. And as you begin to flip through the pages, you begin to see, wow, the pages are beautiful. There's art on the actual copies, the, the advanced reader copies may not have all of the artistry inside of it, but there's art in the book. There's, there's beauty in the book. There is, you know, you can take different pieces of the book out and just look at them and just sit them there and say, wow, you know, and, and I think this is something that I'm very proud of to have worked on with Evie. Um, this is, this is, um, this is perfect. <laughs> yeah, and, and the art and the value of art in, in young people's lives and the power is that's not an accidental feature of the book. That's a huge part of it, right? Absolutely. 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 Yeah. And there are art, there's beautiful art in the final copy. You have to get a hardcover too. I will. It. It's, yeah, it's ordered. It's pre-ordered. Uh, again, <laughs> the book uh, Punching the Air comes out uh, on September 1st, and I believe the audiobook is also read by the young man who, who plays the younger version of you in the film, or in, um, excuse me, when they see us. Yes, Ethan yeah, Harisi so- is, the, is the voice behind the audiobook of Punching the Air. Yes, this is, this, that's, that part was a, a, <laughs> a really fun, amazing, powerful piece that we were able to pull in as well. We love that part. Absolutely. Amazing. Thank you guys so much for being so generous with, with your time and experiences. Well, thank also, you. I'd like to say I'm a Brooklyn girl. <laughs> hey, Brooklyn. Thank you so hey, Brooklyn. Much. Brooklyn's in the house. So thank <laughs> you for, for all your time and from New Yorker to New Yorkers. Thank <laughs> you. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Amanda Duberman. Our podcast managers are Mike Coscarelli and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to sup at Betches.com. Betches.